Lord, we praise you for sending the greatest gift to this world to give us what we didn't even know we needed at first. Lord, thank you that that gift of salvation, both to declare righteous, to grow in Christ-likeness, and to know that you will finish what you started, is not only for the world, but has my name on it. Lord, I pray that we personalize the story of Christmas, Lord, that we never forget uh, the beauty of your grace and your mercy shown to us, not just in the past, but also in the present and to your glory in the future, your grace and your mercy towards us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 will specifically be looking at verses 32 through 45. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat that you're sitting in or underneath the seat uh, that is in front of you and open to page 938. 938. Merry Christmas, right? Can you believe it? Uh, we're here on Sunday morning, December 25th, 2022, on Christmas Day. The last time that this happened, it was in 2016. The time before that was 2011. And did you know the next time that it will happen, it will be 2033? So you may be thinking, man, what in the world are we doing going to church on Christmas Day? Listen, it, it will not happen for 11 more years. And Lord willing, if I'm still here and you're still here, I pray we gather together again if we're able to in person to worship the Lord. Over the past uh, several Sundays, we've been looking at different reasons why Jesus came. We began our study looking in the book of Romans and recognizing that Jesus came to uh, display or to reveal the glory of God. And he does that by uh, showing that uh, God is faithful, that he keeps his promises, and uh, also that God is merciful. And, and through that, we realize that the story of Christmas is, is the very fact that Jesus brings hope. And we know that Jesus brings hope because of the very mission that God sent him to do. He came to those who have nothing to offer. He came to those who are held captive to their sin. He came to those who are blind and deceived. He came to those who are hurting and broken. He came to reveal the grace of God to a world that is desperately in need of that very grace. And we saw last Sunday that Jesus also came to destroy the works of the devil. Praise God for that. He came to take away our sins. And so we're going to continue that thread on why Jesus came. And we are going to look at uh, one verse that we're going to drive our attention to. One particular verse. And I'm going to read it. It's in Mark 10, 45. And the scripture says this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So everything about what we're doing this morning is to drive our attention to the beauty of this verse. The very fact that Jesus Christ is our servant king. Now we need to understand a little bit of the context of what's happening here in Mark 10.45. You see, this transition begins to happen in Mark's account of the gospel where Jesus is setting his attention fully on Jerusalem. 
And we know that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem in those final moments, that ultimately he's going to be falsely accused and tried and crucified on a cross, but we know that three days later he's going to rise from the grave. So everything is moving to that point. And so Jesus has uh, 12 of his disciples with him. And they're on the road, and we begin uh, understanding a little bit more of the context leading into verse 45 as we begin to read together in verse 32. And the scripture says, And they, talking about the twelve disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. So a little bit of that verse tells us that they're doing what they ordinarily do. It's not uncommon that Jesus would be leading the way. Praise God for that, right? He is leading the way. They're following what they have done before, but this day is different. Again, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. So we don't know what it is about that walk that made it a little bit different where they were amazed and afraid, but something was happening. We have Jesus in resolute posture, walking towards Jerusalem. And the scripture continues. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now Jesus had already shared some of these details with his disciples previously. But there's two things that Jesus reveals here that, that were unknown to the disciples up until this point. One, the scripture tells us that, that Jesus is going to be handed over to the Roman courts, right? Uh, the second thing that the scripture tells us is that uh, Jesus is going to be mocked as a king, spit on like a dog, and flogged like a criminal, right? And what is the response that we receive from two of the disciples? Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and if you remember uh, different accounts of the same event in the Gospels, uh, the, the mom was there, right? She's pleading her case. Uh, they came up to Jesus, or came up to him, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, you have to understand the context here. I mean, we're talking about Jesus. Now, I know, and my, my kids and my wife knows, that there are times where I come home from work, or I wake up in the morning, and I say, I just need you to say yes. Well, what am I saying yes to? No, 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 no. I just need you to say yes. Now, my kids are realizing that a lot of times that yes is, you're coming to work with me because i got something for you to do. But most often, there's a surprise, right? They realize that, that uh, hopefully, my, my heart is good towards them, right? So understand what is happening here. These two men, these disciples, these followers of Christ, right after Jesus said what he said, say, Jesus... We want you to say yes. To whatever I'm, we're getting ready to ask you, we want you to say yes. And here's the response, verse 36. Then he, Jesus, said to them, What do you want to do? What do you want me to do for you? And this is what they said. They said to him, Grant us to sit at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Now, it's interesting that uh, James and John, they, they did a lot wrong in this passage, but they did get this right. They do know that ultimately, whatever is ahead of Jesus, 
that that flogging, that spitting on, that, that death, that resurrection, they know that he's going to reign, right? So they get that right. Oh, but they get a lot of other things wrong. You see, their question, their asking, reveals something about the condition of their heart. It realizes that they truly don't have an understanding of sacrificial service, right? They don't understand the value of gospel position, and they don't understand really how God evaluates greatness. That's why it's important for us to recognize how Jesus' glory is actually going to be shown. Verse 38, the scripture says, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. In other words, do you really think you're going to be able to walk in my shoes? Right? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? He continues on in verse 39 and 40. And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus here mentions the cup and baptism, right? Uh, the cup refers to the full weight of God's wrath towards sin. That's important. He also talks about the baptism. The baptism refers to not water baptism, but the suffering that Jesus will be immersed in. So Jesus says, my pathway to glory, my pathway to kingship, my pathway to reign comes through what? Suffering and death. And it's interesting that we kind of get a, a foreshadowing of what's ultimately going to happen to James and John. We know that James is the first apostle to be martyred in the scripture. Acts 12 tells us about that. And we know that John is going to be cast off, right? And he's going to be cast off and persecuted and, and left to where he will die of natural causes, right? So he's going to be abandoned in many ways. And Jesus' point is to show them and to show us that the pathway to glory is always a pathway of suffering. As one writer says, before the crown there is a cup of suffering. Before the blessings that flow there is the baptism that overwhelms. This is what Christmas means. On Jesus' pathway from glory to glory, he came here to pass through suffering and death. Verse 41 and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. That word indignant means hey, they were ticked off, right? Now the question is, why are they so upset? Why are they so angry? Well, we get an understanding of the context in the previous chapter in Mark 9. In Mark 9, it tells us, and they uh, came to Capernaum. Uh, so this is all the twelve disciples. Uh, and, when they, uh, and when he was in the house, more than likely they were at Peter and Andrew's house. He, Jesus, asked them, the twelve disciples, what were you discussing on the way? So, evidently, on this road where Jesus led, and they're following, they're having a dialogue. Now, they don't think that Jesus hears the dialogue. You, you understand that as parents, right? Our kids start talking about something, and, and there's like six inches, that wall, that's in between us and them, and they have no idea that we're there. We're just kind of sitting there. All right, what, you know, what are they going to say? So Jesus is hearing what's being discussed. They don't know that. And that's why the scripture says what? What, what happened? But they kept silent. Uh-oh. Jesus knows what we were talking about. So they're probably a little ashamed here. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So they had already had this conversation. 
They're actually arguing over it, but why are the ten angry? Why are they so upset? Because James and John beat them to the punch, right? They beat them to the jockeying of the position. Who's going to get the status? Who's going to be the one? Jesus is exposing the selfishness of the heart of man, right? Again, the conflict that we see here is selfishness and selflessness. And so Jesus exposes the heart in verse 42 of Mark 10. He says, Then Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So he pulls the twelve together, and he says, I want you to, you know how the Gentiles rule, right? They, they lord it over you. And man, that is like the massive gut punch to their heart. Why? Because the disciples knew what it was like to be under the heavy hand of corruption that was from the Romans, right? And they had spent decades of being pushed to the back, oppressed, and looked down upon. And Jesus says, this is important, be careful to observe the inner Roman in each of your hearts. Be careful. And notice what Jesus says in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. In other words, you are different. Do not be like that. Do not lead like that. Do not have a heart posture like that. But whoever would be great among you must be what? Your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. Jesus says, stop following the system of the world. Jesus reverses all ideas of what greatness is all about. Be a servant and a slave to all. What? If we honestly poll every Christian family at Charleston Baptist Church, is that the message that our young people are hearing? A slave and a servant? I don't think there's many that desire to aspire to that. And Jesus is exposing our heart. And that's the context of verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So what do we learn in verse 45? One, we learn that Jesus came to serve in His humility. In His humility. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be, or He came not to be served, but to serve. The word serve is where we get the word uh, deacon from. Uh, it means to wait on tables. So Jesus comes into our world, our rebellion, our disrespect, our hardness of heart, and says, I came to wait on you. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. The phrase Son of Man happens, occurs 69 times in the Gospel narratives. and it, In fact, it's uh, probably Jesus' uh, favorite uh, description of himself. Uh, it's referring to the fact that not only is Jesus fully God, but he's also uh, fully human. Jesus chose to come as we are, right? And that's the humility that we see. Jesus came surrendering his rights. We see this in uh, Philippians 2. 
Verse 6, the scripture says, Who, though he, speaking of Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This means that inwardly and outwardly, Jesus is God, right? Hebrews 1.3 says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now there's two words in here that aren't found anywhere else in the New Testament. The word radiance. The word radiance doesn't mean a reflection. Jesus is not reflecting God's glory. Jesus is God's glory. And the exact imprint means that he's the exact impression, the exact representation of the real thing. He's genuine. And this, I laugh at this all the time because Pastor Jason loves Taco Bell, right? And I just want to say, that beef taco is probably not beef, right? It's probably not authentic, which he would reply, but I love it anyway, right? So when we think about the radiance and the exact imprint of Jesus, Jesus is the real deal. He is genuine to the core. And then, remember what Paul said, do not count, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. The word grasped means something that he didn't have to parade in front of others, right? You know, Jesus isn't wearing a t-shirt that says, look at me. Right? Man, that is totally countercultural today. When everything about us in today's society is simply that about us. The scripture says that he's the son of man. The first encounter of this happens in the book of Daniel. Now understand the weight of this phrase, son of man, in a different part in the book of Daniel. Daniel 7 says this, and to him, the son of man, speaking of Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And here we see Jesus because all that's true. Jesus comes to serve in humility. The scripture says in verse 7 of Philippians 2 that he emptied himself. He made himself nothing if you will. He poured himself out by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Think about how he emptied himself. That doesn't mean that he stopped being God or stopped having those divine attributes or characteristics. That's not what it's talking about. It, it means that uh, Jesus uh, absorbed two new characteristics, if you will. One, he became a servant. Two, he became a man. Right? So he's not losing anything. He's putting on something else. Servanthood, and he became a man. This passage tells us that Jesus, in human likeness, is familiar with our struggles. That's why we understand this personal relationship is so, so important. Hebrews 4 tells us that he sympathizes with our weakness. He has experienced all temptation, but he is different. He's unique. He's one of a kind. Why? Because he never sinned, right? But it's because of that that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. The scripture tells us in Hebrews 4 that with boldness we can go to the throne room of his grace, right? Because he knows what we're going through. You know, Jesus got hungry. He got thirsty. He wept. He was rejected. He suffered. And yes, he even died. So Jesus came to serve in humility. Secondly, Jesus came to serve... And his suffering, his suffering, uh, marks, uh, Jesus says, and, and to give himself, what? 
give his life as a, as a ransom. When we talk about the suffering of Jesus, we need to understand that Jesus is no victim, right? He's no victim. He's not playing the victim card in any way. He chose to be the suffering servant. Jesus chose to give his life. He chose to be a ransom for many. He ransomed us. That means he came to deliver by purchase, right? He purchased us. He purchased our freedom from slavery to sin, our condemnation of guilt because of that sin. We are to absorb the full wrath of God, but Jesus came to ransom us from that. Jesus is the substitutionary death. He stood in our place. Think about the beauty of that. That the death of Jesus is sufficient for all, right? But it's only applied to those who have put their faith and trust in Him. Now there's something that we need to understand about this substitutionary death. Jesus paid our ransom to who? He didn't pay it to the devil. He paid it to God the Father. Right? That's where the debt was owed. We sinned against Him. We rebelled against Him. And so that debt that was paid, that blood that was shed, was in no way given to anybody else but who? God the Father. And in humility, Jesus came to die. Philippians 2.8 says this, Of being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Being found as a real man, blood, bones, and skin, He humbled Himself. He chose to do this. Not, no one forced Him. Jesus was obedient right to the end. He had the opportunity, He had the authority and the power not to go that route. But He chose to do it. He chose to do it. You know, the prophet Isaiah speaks of this some 700 years before the birth of Jesus in Isaiah 53. The scripture says, For he grew up before him uh, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, who he, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Remember, there was a parade for Jesus. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. God save us, God save us. But remember what happened at the end of that parade. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. The rejected one is our substitute. Isaiah 53 verse 4 continues, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. The wounding of Christ heals everything perfectly. All the effects of sin in your life and my life, the sins that we commit, and the sins that we have to deal with from others. Guess what? One day Jesus is going to heal all those things. Praise be to God for that. Verse 6, And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ paid the penalty for all our wandering. Praise God for that. Man, we wander all the time. Verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, think about that phrasing there, oppressed and afflicted. This, in my opinion, based on Scripture, this describes the greatest display of human injustice in all of human history. I deserve that punishment. And you deserve that 
punishment. But the perfect one stood in our place. He served us in his suffering. Verse 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken from the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there is no deceit in his mouth. Listen to that. Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Jesus died as an innocent, perfect man. Praise God. Praise God for our suffering servant. Once and for all, the payment has been paid. Jesus' mission is to take our place. John 3.16, we looked at this last night, but look at verse 17 when we get to it. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because we're already condemned. We're already guilty. But in order that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus didn't suffer for just the masses. He suffered for you. The gospel has your name on it. He came for you. Jesus came in weakness, not in strength. He came to die, not to kill. He chose to drink the cup of God's wrath. He chose to be immersed in tremendous suffering. He came to give, not to take. He came to serve, not to be served. Listen to how Jesus defines victory. Victory is defined by giving, not taking. Self-sacrifice, not selfishness. Because of that, praise God, through the gospel, there's hope for all mankind. There's a light for all peoples, all nations, all colors, all backgrounds, for all times. He gave. We didn't earn. We didn't deserve. We don't secure it. He gave. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's singular, talking about the righteous one, Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's plural, that's the many, that's you and I, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection is all meant to show that his sacrifice is sufficient. It is sufficient. So he came as in humility, he came uh, in his suffering, and he also came to serve us. That's the beauty. Verse 45 again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for, in, for many. You know, the story of Christmas is really the story of we need help, right? I mean, that's as simple as we can get it. We need help. Jesus is our servant. He gives us what we need. Now, that's a hard truth to wrap our minds around, right? I mean, how many of us spend our day, we wake up first thing in the morning, or at some point, you know, we get that spiritual vibe going on, and all right, what am I going to do for Jesus today, right? Don't, don't let that be your starting point, right? But your starting point be that Jesus came to serve us. And it's through his service to us, guess what? We now can serve others, or serve him by serving others. You know, we see a picture of this in John, in the Gospel of John. Uh, remember, John 15, uh, Jesus says, Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. So he's already has, he, he already set the stage in John 13. That's what we're going to look at uh, in just a second. But think about that, that. That as we abide in him, as we fellowship with him, that, that's what gives us the strength to, to be servants, godly servants in this world. 
And he sets the stage, really, in John 13. And this is where we're going to end our time this morning. But listen to uh, the language of what's happening here. So this is Jesus uh, talking to his disciples. Keep in mind, at this point, Judas is still there. Remember, Judas is the one who uh, ultimately betrayed Jesus. Uh, the scripture says in John 13, verse uh, 1, if I'm not mistaken, that, that it was at this point where the, the devil entered into Judas. So Judas isn't truly a follower of Christ, right? Uh, but he's there. So he's witnessing this. He's actually going to experience something that's pretty amazing in just a second. So verse 3, the scripture says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, so Jesus has what? He has divine authority. We already saw that in our time together today. And that he had come from God, so he has a divine origin, right? Uh, and it was going back to God, so there's a future glory that's happening. Uh, the scripture says that he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. And there is an amazing correlation, an amazing connection between John 13 and Philippians 2. Right? Think about it like this. Jesus rose from supper like he rose from his throne. He laid aside his outer garments like he laid aside his glory. He took a towel like he took the place of a servant. He poured water in a basin to wash the feet of sinners like he poured out his blood on the cross to cleanse us of all our sins. Now keep in mind, the cultural setting here. Roads are dirty, right? They're not wearing blazers and Air Jordans and all that stuff, right? They got at best, they got open-toed shoes, right? And so they're getting dirty, right? And they keep in mind that, that we eat a little bit different than they did. Uh, you're, not, you're not going to, you know, eat hibachi later on and, and laying down on the, on the floor at the restaurant, right? You know, you're sitting up. You can hide everything that's below your waist, right? So if your, your shoes or your socks aren't matching or maybe if you didn't even have socks on or whatever, nobody's going to see it. But in this culture, everybody laid down when they ate, right? They're laying on their side. So you see the feet. You see the dirty feet, right? And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes the posture of a servant. Every household had someone who would wash the feet of those who came uh, to their home. That's a sign of great hospitality, right? And who takes the place? Jesus Christ himself. He does what the servant the lowest servant was supposed to do. And then continuing on in verse 6, the scripture says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So he's talking about Judas in that statement. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. So what's happening here? Alright. When we are... Uh, washed by the blood of Jesus, and we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, right? Uh, we are bathed in Christ, if you will. Meaning that we, we are justified before God. Right? And, and ju justification, being made right with God, is a one-time act, right? It, it's a one-time deal. You don't have to wake up every day and say, am I justified today? No, if you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are fully justified. You are fully right with God. But, but Jesus not only talks about that, but he's talking about a cleansing that needs to happen. 
So think about it like this. In our particular culture, uh, you get up in the morning, you're getting ready to go uh, eat uh, lunch at Andrew's house or one of the disciples' house, and you take a bath, right? Uh, and then you're on that road, that dusty road, and you get to the house. Uh, you don't need to have a full bath again. You do what? You have your feet washed, right? Kind of like this. Uh, you get up in the morning, and hopefully you took a bath. Uh, maybe you had to run to Walmart and run some errands or do all those things. And before you eat later that day, someone's probably going to say, you need to wash your hands. Now, you might think, well, I just went to Walmart. I probably got to wash up my whole body again. But, but you're going to wash your hands, right? Kids go outside. They play basketball and all those things. They get back in before they eat the wings and all that stuff. You tell them to do what? Wash your hands. So the picture here is what? Jesus is pointing out that though we have been fully justified in Christ by his blood, we also need continual daily cleansing from the effects of our sin, right? right? That fellowship is so, so important. And one of the ways that our fellowship is broken with the Lord is when we have unconfessed, unrepentant sin. And he's reminding them that though you are completely right with me, you still need that daily cleansing. You still need that daily honesty before me. And let me cleanse you of the effects of living in a broken world. And then he goes on to say, verse 12, and this is our application that we'll take away uh, for us uh, this morning. The scripture says in verse 12, And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And we'll pause right there. We'll get to verse 17 in just a second. But Jesus is showing us how to live, right? Again, how do you define greatness? A servant. A slave to all. Again, Judas is there. The enemy is there. And Jesus does what? Jesus, is, Jesus serves him. So it's a reminder to us that we're not just serving those who are easy. God has given us a heart through his gospel, through his spirit, to serve even the ones that are very, very difficult. And I love the type of service that Jesus explains here. Now think about this for just a minute. Oftentimes when we think about service, and there's nothing wrong with that, we think about providing food or providing, you know, cutting someone's yard and all that stuff. That, that is awesome. We need to do those things. But the context here is Jesus says one of the greatest ways that you can serve one another is through the process of restoration, right? Galatians 6 and 1. If another brother gets caught in anything, rebelling in anything, you who are spiritual, you who are being guarded and led by the Holy Spirit of God, you should take the posture of what? Service. How? By restoring your brother or sister in Christ gently. Right? So the context here is that we would come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, when they were walking uh, uh, away from the Lord, if you will. Uh, and so Jesus says that we exalt Jesus by serving others. That we clothe ourselves with humility, as Peter reminds us. Be willing to suffer. But first, allow Jesus to serve you. Right? And what's the end game here? Verse 17, the scripture says, If you know these things, so we know these things, but we just heard about it, blessed are you if you do them. So it's not just hearing, but do them. I love verse 17 because it's really an amazing picture of joy. Right? 
I mean, when you, through the Holy Spirit, serve others, God gives you tremendous joy. Remember in Hebrews 12, 2, where the scripture says uh, that the author and perfecter of our faith, talking about Jesus Christ, uh, for the joy set before him, endure the cross. Right? Man, what great joy. To first be served by God and to, in return, serve him by serving others. Jesus came to serve in his humility. He came to serve in his suffering and he came to serve us. This Christmas morning, do you adore him? Are you thankful that he came to serve? Are you thankful that he came to expose the sinfulness of our heart and to show us, to not only model for us, but to uh, give us strength and power to be servants? So when we think about the story of Christmas, we must be reminded that it's a story about his service to us. And so as you just think about your life for just a moment, when you think about your day, maybe even this morning, you know, Christmas morning is a little difficult for service, right? Not worship service here, but just service in general. Because most of the time you're thinking about what? You're thinking about what's under the tree for you, right? What a great reminder, even on Christmas Day, of the beauty of service, how Christ has come to serve us. So if you're here today and you are walking with weight, and struggle. And whatever that is, know that Jesus came to serve you. As a child of God, by grace through faith, He has come to serve you. And for those who have never received Christ as their Lord and Savior, remember, He gave His life as a ransom for many. In other words, His death on the cross, His service to this world is sufficient for all, but it's only applied to those who receive Christ as their Savior. This morning, will you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord? When you do, and if you do, you are a part of His family. You are a child of God. So as we sing, adore.